Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, February 23rd, and we are back with another episode bringing you the latest and greatest news of the week. My name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am happy to be here. And joining me back from his uh, vacation to the clouds is Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I hope you didn't go bananas without me last week. Well, you know, it was tough. We monkeyed around a little bit, but uh, fortunately, we were able to uh, keep things from splitting. And in case you didn't know, today is National Banana Bread Day. So if you do have a bunch of fun things in your kitchen, you should totally go check them out. I know they're not very appealing when they're kind of brown on the outside, but take this opportunity to uh, make yourself some delicious banana bread. Um, I'm sure we can uh, leave some recipes for you in the show notes. Speaking of the show, now that we're done with all of the banana puns that I can think of, we do have some interesting stories that we definitely want to bring to your attention. And the first of them is actually a, a new release, uh, courtesy of our friends over at Veritas, because they are shipping the latest version of their flagship software platform, Net Backup. Now we're at version 10, and it comes a year after they released version 9, so at least they've got the release cadence down. And this one includes support for multi-cloud storage and tiering capabilities, the ability to recover your data to any kind of Kubernetes distribution, and automatic malware scanning during the backup process. Now, you probably would think, aren't these kind of like table stakes now? And you might be right because Veritas is continuing to respond to the changing conditions in the backup and recovery uh, space as more of uh, their customers start to look at things like data protection, and the fact that a lot of their workloads are now based in the cloud. So Stephen, as someone who kind of has their finger on the pulse of this industry a little bit, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing in this latest release? Yeah, I, I've got to say that uh, it's, a, it's an impressive release. Uh, those of you who may not be as familiar with Veritas and with NetBackup, uh, this is basically one of the leaders in uh, storage software and data protection software in the enterprise. Uh, Veritas goes way, way back. Uh, Net Backup also goes way back. Just to kind of give you some context, I was configuring Net Backup uh, in my very first IT job uh, way back in the 90s. And uh, it was acquired, uh, a company called Open Vision started, it was acquired in 1997. And it survived all this time as basically the default leader in backup and data protection for enterprise workloads. I mean, that was, you know, we used it on Sun workstations and servers and so on. Uh, and, you know, kind of like Commvault, which is another leader in the space, uh, Veritas sometimes has people kind of looking at them thinking, you know, oh, that's kind of old school. But, you know, that's really not fair. I think that a lot of these companies have put in a ton of work to try to develop their products and move them into the cloud and modern computing era. And that's really what I see here with NetBackup version 10. Essentially, this is Veritas bringing their technology into the cloud. And they've got a lot of great cloud features. I mean, you know, they support uh, most uh, major clouds now. They support a lot of software as a service and platform as a service applications. You know, they've got uh, malware scanning and uh, things like that. I mean, basically, this is, um, I don't want to say table stakes, but this is sort of the current state of the art for data protection. But when you're looking at these things, especially vis-a-vis -vis some of their competitors, I mean, you know, some of the, the hot companies out there that you hear about, like Rubrik and Cohesity, Druva, uh, Veeam even, um, one of the things to keep in mind is that uh, companies like uh, 
Commvault and Veritas have a huge history and a lot of coverage. And that's really, for me, the differentiator with these products. Essentially, if uh, one of those hot new products fits the bill, by all means, you know, give it a shot. But if you've got a larger enterprise with a very diverse set of applications, you're probably going to need to look at a Commvault or a Veritas. And frankly, uh, Veritas is sending a strong message here to say, you know what? Even in the modern era, even with cloud and uh, modern applications, Veritas is still a player. And I think they're showing that with version 10. Tom, uh, whatever the opposite of Amazon Prime two-day shipping is, that's what Cisco's customers are feeling right now. During the earnings call last week, the networking titan said that it has $14 billion worth of orders in the backlog, and there's no idea when they'll be able to ship them. Kind of like my Tesla, Elon. CEO Chuck Robbins said that while things don't get, didn't get better or worse with regard to the situation overall, there was no timeline for when they were going to be able to improve things. Tom, what is going on with Cisco and these delays, and when are customers going to get their hardware? Right now, I don't know that there's a clear answer to that, and the reason why is because the chip shortage isn't getting any better. Even though production has ramped up, in these facilities, you're starting to see another interesting problem arise. And this is not only a problem with the chip industry, it's, it's across all markets. Big companies that need to get inventory back in stock after the shutdown are essentially buying up large tracts of uh, production space. I mean, uh, in, in other industries that are related to things, you know, like outdoor gear, uh, some of the, the cottage industry makers are like, listen, I can't get any more manufacturing facility for 18 months. Like everybody else that went into the same factory that makes all the same stuff and bought it. And I think you're starting to see that with companies like TSMC and, and the other ones. So you're kind of caught in this, this mess that we've seen where one company is trying to, um, you know, get the orders out as fast as they can while everybody else is trying to ramp up production. I mean, that's what we're seeing with Intel and AMD trying to bring all these fabs and foundries online. And I think that was even part of the motivation for Intel buying Tower that we reported on last week was that it's as much about them trying to get fab um, time as anything else. But I think there's another problem here that, that a lot of people are kind of missing out on with this whole Cisco issue. So first of all, they got $14 billion in revenue that's just parked. They can't do anything with that right now because the, you know generally acceptable accounting practices says you can't recognize the revenue when it's realized and all that other stuff. <clears throat> so they're basically sitting on a mountain of things. But a chunk of that, something like $2 billion of it, is software revenue. And you would probably sit here and kind of shrug your shoulders thinking, why wouldn't Cisco be able to ship software? Like, it doesn't require a chip. Except that it does, because a lot of the revenue that they've booked for this software is stuff that either needs new hardware to implement properly, or is a replacement in kind of a, a, a deal where we're ripping and replacing your old switches and, oh, maybe we're including things like the uh, APIC EM type software that only runs on our latest switches. So they're not only, they're not only being able to be, like they're not able to recognize the revenue of the hardware, but attach services and things like that. And if you remember, that was Chuck Robbins' big deal. He has to get this company away from these big ticket, big box type purchases. Now, here's the other problem that you really have to consider. It's not just that Cisco's losing money on the software or the hardware. Cisco's also losing money because they have to put up cash. That's the other huge issue. Cisco has to pay to buy all of these components ahead of time. 
And so their operating cash reserves are starting to dwindle because they've had to essentially pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, except they're paying you for the hamburger today, but they're actually not going to get the hamburger for six more months. And so with all of this cash outflow and them not being able to recognize the revenue from it, they're going to come into a crunch pretty soon. And I don't know what's going to happen when that hits. So I'm hoping this mess sorts itself out and just know that Cisco is not the only one who's going through this. And that's one of the other issues that you need to consider is that in other times, if Cisco's having trouble getting kit, guess what? I'll just go to the next, the next vendor, except none of the other vendors can get kit either. So who knows what's going to happen? All right, Stephen, uh, moving on to another chip maker, but maybe not a chip story itself. NVIDIA seems to have gotten back on that acquisition horse after that whole thing with ARM uh, because there is a report over from Chris Malore at Blocks and Files that says NVIDIA could be looking to acquire the NVMe storage startup Accelero. Now, the company, which did present back at Storage Field Day in 2017, has a software platform that allows you to build a virtual distributed uh, flash storage system. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, when asked about this uh, news, the Accelero CEO, uh, Yaniv Romim, simply replied, declined to comment. Um, Steven, listen, I'm I'm not up on all the cool new hot hardware going on. What does NVIDIA want with a storage company? Well, you know, NVIDIA has been uh, making a lot of acquisitions to establish themselves as a viable competitor in the enterprise and cloud space. And I think that that's a really important way, you know, filter to see a lot of these stories, whether it was the ARM acquisition, which didn't happen, the Mellanox acquisition, which did, or even, uh, you know, AMD's recent closing of the Xilinx acquisition. Essentially, all you need to do is look at Intel and Intel's success in enterprise data center and cloud. And Intel's success really is due to them offering a sort of a, a, a complete a portfolio of solutions, not just a fast CPU. They offer a cloud platform, a uh, enterprise data center platform with a lot of options and a lot of mix and match. And it has proved over the years to be a uh, really unassailable wall for Intel in those markets. Now, I say unassailable, but of course, AMD is actually going after it full force, as is NVIDIA. But uh, AMD really seems to be trying to copy Intel move for move uh, in terms of uh, adding, you know, smart NICs and FPGAs and so on. And um, whereas NVIDIA seems to be taking a little twist on things, NVIDIA's approach is more of a next generation approach that looks at the server not as a monolith like AMD and Intel, but as a disaggregated device. I think that's where AMD and Intel are going as well, but NVIDIA is moving much more quickly there. Now, part of this is frankly because NVIDIA doesn't have a CPU. So uh, if you don't have a CPU, then it makes sense to look at the server differently. Uh, but on the other hand, I think NVIDIA is smart to look at things this way and say, we need to build a next generation disaggregated platform for serving uh, data center and cloud applications. And what does that platform need to include? Well, it certainly needs to include GPU. It also needs to include specialized processors that NVIDIA is, is investing in, along with uh, network offload. But one of the things that uh, a lot of these companies don't have is storage. 
Now, Accelero is a really cool product. As you mentioned, we saw them in 2017 when the company first launched. They told us about their NVMesh uh, product, which essentially allows you to have a distributed storage platform over NVMe. This is actually a great complement to what NVIDIA is trying to do with their Grace uh, offload accelerator platform. Essentially, don't think of Grace as NVIDIA's server. Think of it as a distributed uh, offload for uh, special purpose processing. Think about N, uh, the Accelero product in, in a very similar way, and it becomes really obvious why NVIDIA might want this. Now, this company is smart. They've got great people. They've only had a little bit of funding. I mean, I think uh, about $35 million of funding. And they've been quietly working on building a tremendous uh, product from a sort of speeds and feeds specs design perspective. I'm not sure how well sales are going. So maybe this is one of those situations where uh, Accelero sees this as a, a lifeline. But I think that more likely is that Accelero was always built to be a next generation storage platform for somebody like uh, NVIDIA to buy. So I would not be at all surprised if NVIDIA buys this. It makes a ton of strategic sense for them. And good on you, Accelero guys. Next up, uh, Tom, it's time for out with the old and in with the new, I guess. AT&T has become the first major mobile phone network to begin sunsetting their 3G network. This uh, occurred yesterday, February 22nd. If you were previously using a cell phone that only supported 3G networking, then you'll need a new phone that supports 4G LTE or better. The remaining providers will also have a timeline to shut down their networks, with T-Mobile taking theirs offline at the end of March and Verizon turning out the lights at the end of 2022. The former 3G radio uh, spectrum will be reclaimed for use in more modern networks and devices. And... Um, you know, this uh, is is a major move because a lot of people are still using these. Uh, Tom, what's your take? <laughs> My take is is that um, these network providers are getting greedy, um, and I, I know that sounds bad and overly simplified. But here's the deal: you need to think about first of all the fact that that all of these providers basically said if you're still using one of those old Nokia phones, you've got to get something new and hot and exciting. And we will send you something like they sent out galaxy notes to people who were still using those old Nokia candy bar phones. They didn't do this out of the goodness of their own hearts because they weighed, you know, getting people off of that network so they could shut it down because there's a, a lot of gold in that there spectrum. But it's the other things that you have to keep in mind. Um, one of the things we were talking about right before the show started was all of the automotive um, 3G networks. I mean, how many cars were sold in the early 2000s that had 3G uplinks, whether it was, you know, a minivan hotspot or some kind of a telemetry sensor or the ability to get traffic updates automatically? Those don't work anymore. And that's not, <clears throat> I'm going to ship you a Samsung phone to replace it kind of not working. That is a, we're sorry, your vehicle has a component that is no longer available for use, period, kind of stuff. And that sucks. And and the problem ultimately, like I said, is that the network providers don't care because they have to roll this 3G spectrum back in for use with their other devices because they have to be able to sell it. And these companies have gotten so spectrum hungry over the course of the last, I don't know, five years that it's becoming a race. Like these blocks are going up for auction at the FCC and they're fetching enormous cost. You know, like, like billions of dollars to get this unlocked because 
as sad as it sounds to say, we are a society that is addicted to the download number. The bigger it is, the better it is, the better we think the service is. We'll still complain about call quality. We'll still complain about network latency. We'll still complain about the fact that there's absolutely no reason why this stupid game app requires four gigs of space on my phone. But boy, as long as that download number looks really awesome, we don't care. To the point where companies like Verizon are starting to offer 5G home internet service. They're not even bothering running a cable plan anymore. But if you're going to do that, you really have to have a lot of spectrum available. And that's kind of what's going to happen. And so, yeah, AT&T basically said, we have to do this. We're, we, we've got to shut it down and we've got to turn everything over. Um that's a big deal in the long run and and there's nothing you can do about it so for those of you who love the memes of about the fact that you know nokia phones are basically like the one ring or a horcrux and they're completely indestructible it didn't take uh the fires of mount doom to kill a nokia candy bar phone it, it just took the providers shutting their service off all right steven uh we had a story we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at here and it was one you brought to our attention because it was kind of an interesting thing now, it's no surprise for people out there who are fans of The Rundown, our, our community members, that uh, the situation with cybercrime just seems to keep getting worse. Um, if you're not getting exploited by malware or ransomware attacks, then now you have to worry about this growing market for NFTs and cryptocurrency and all the other Web3-based grift that seems to be going on. At the heart of it all is the idea that the burden for protecting all of your assets and your personal life and liberty from all of this crazy criminal activity is you. It's your fault that you got exploited and you need to be better about it. Now, there's an interesting proposal that appeared this week in an article that was penned by Chris Inglis, who's the U.S. National Cybersecurity Director, and Harry Crisea. Uh, I'm going to butcher your name, Harry. I'm sorry for that. In it, because we've linked it in the show notes, because you definitely want to go read this. It's it's something really interesting. Um, it's a suggestion for a new cyber social contract to help build trust and uh, security in the public. The proposals include things that are already on the radar of the current U.S. federal administration, like more oversight and regulation, as well as some pretty bold suggestions, all the way up to creating a formal government agency, similar to the EPA or the NTSB, to help... Uh, deal with cyber threats as they arise. Now, Stephen, you and I have had a lot of discussions about cybersecurity, about privacy, all of these kinds of things. Is it time for the government to step in and help out here? I think first we have to look at this and say, what is a social contract anyway? If you're not up on political theory, you should know that a social contract was uh, postulated in the 18th century by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And the idea is that individuals sometimes need to give up their own liberty and rights in order for the government to take things on for the whole. Now, this is an important aspect of this entire letter and this entire conversation, because what we're seeing here is the uh, director of the uh, United States uh, cyber whatever, you know, he's the national cyber director, uh, is saying essentially that it's time for American individuals and businesses to give up some of their freedom to the government so that the government can help respond to cyber threats. 
all of those libertarians on the, on, in the world, everybody listening to us that is maybe a little right of center is probably already uh, ready to pick up a pitchfork and light a torch and march on the National Cyber Director's office. But hold on, folks. Let's think about this for a minute. So in this letter, which, by the way, is extremely well-written and also extremely interesting, he likens the situation in cybersecurity to, as you mentioned, the situations with uh, Food and Drug Administration, the Clean Air Act, uh, airline safety, and the NTSB. And what he's saying here is not that we need to give up our rights and live in a totalitarian, you know, internet controlled by the military or something like that. What he's saying is that this is really a, uh, a, a particularly terrible situation for everyone involved in the internet. The, the, the letter starts by talking about sort of the history and the goals and the dreams of the internet, which is important because uh, many of us who's been involved for a long time and many of uh, techno-libertarians out there who just were getting their pitchforks, uh, they would uh, definitely recognize the goals and the dreams uh, that he lays out in this letter. And then they would definitely agree that a lot of those things have been sidelined by bad actors. I mean, think about it. Uh, one of the original applications for the internet was, uh, you know, Usenet and IRC and the free and open exchange of ideas that comes from that. Well, that's led us to this whole world of, you know, fake news and propaganda everywhere you look and nobody trusts anything anymore because everybody can say whatever they want. Uh, there are situations maybe where we need to look at limits of things uh, that seemed like a good idea at, at, at the start. And, and such as it is with cybersecurity. So if you look at the current state of affairs with cybersecurity, the problem is that we in the free internet are aggressively being locked out and targeted by nation state actors and very organized cybercrime gangs. Essentially, it is uh, the free versus the fascists all over again. And that's why he's suggesting that we need to think about a new uh, social contract that says maybe we need to allow the government to help us protect the internet from this stuff. Again, that's not gonna be to the taste of a lot of people, but think about it this way. You are already allowing the US government and the US military to help protect you from uh, bad actors on the internet. Every day, a lot of these hacks and threats that we're seeing are actually uh, detected and, and combated by basically military and government agencies. You can't necessarily trust them. I mean, obviously, the NSA and the, and the CIA are in the news uh, once again with uh, doing some things that really they ought not to have been doing. And I'm not trying to downplay that. But at the same time, it is beneficial to have these large organizations, non-corporate organizations out there trying to help uh, fight off some of these uh, nation state attackers instead of just relying on corporations that are doing things for profit, uh, maybe with the best interest of us all at heart. But, you know, ultimately, you know, Microsoft and, and so on, they're not, you know, doing cyber defense because they love it. They're doing it because they need to, because otherwise it'll affect their bottom line. So all he's suggesting is that we need to think about a new way of looking at combating cyber threats and that that needs to include the government. And frankly, that is a very, very uh, democratic idea 
uh, dating back centuries. And, and it really is in line with some of these other areas that we're talking about here. Now, the letter closes with a, le- with a reference to sort of the uh, Walt Disney bright and shiny future of uh, renewable energy and autonomous vehicles and the space economy. But more importantly, the last section of this letter focuses on geopolitics and the fact that China and Russia, specifically by name, are listed as attacking United States interests. This is a 40-year Air Force veteran telling us that we've got a problem. We've got a military problem. It's not just a United States problem either. It's a world problem because of these bad actors on the internet. And he's advocating for the government to get more involved. Is that a good idea? Is that going to be to the taste of everyone? I don't know. But at least it's something instead of just sitting here and getting attacked every day. I agree in principle with a lot of what you said, Stephen. And I agree in principle with a lot of what was brought up in the article. And I'm a fan of the EPA in the NTSB and a lot of the agencies that we've created to basically say nobody else is going to step up and do this and we need to take care of it. I mean, you're from Ohio. The EPA was created because a river literally was lit on fire. That being said, our government needs to stay out of this. Now, before you get the pitchforks and the torches, the other side of the aisle, I think something does need to be done. I don't think we need to be doing it. And here's why. You alluded to it in the very last thing that you said. We have a lot of crime that happens here. We've seen it. We can legislate it. We can police it. But the majority of the things that are going on don't happen here. They happen elsewhere. When you look at the fact that Eastern Europe and Russia and North Korea and China are responsible for an alarmingly large percentage of the cybercrime that happens, guess what? We can't do anything about that. And that is a huge problem that we've already seen. In a way, it's like the limitations that the NTSB has. If the plane's flying over the U.S. and has a problem, the NTSB can get involved. But as we saw with um, some of the issues with uh, the the Max 8 jets that unfortunately crashed in Kenya and Indonesia, the NTSB can't really just go over there and say, hey, it was an American jet. We have jurisdiction because the world's going to be like, no, you don't. Get out of here. We don't. We have our own people to investigate that. And I think that that's where the problem is. This has to be a global solution. And we see this in the prosecution of like um, the uh, the Revil gang and all the other ones that we've talked about for a long time on the rundown. You can follow that trail all the way up to the border of that Eastern European country that likes to hack people, and then it just disappears. Why? Because the internal police force doesn't care, and they won't give you jurisdiction to go in and find those people. In fact, the way that they were able to roll up a lot of those gangs was they were able to find assets outside of Ukraine and Russia and other Eastern European countries, and they were able to kind of backtrace it through there. And those are the ones that we have, even if it's just frosty relations with, normal relations. What about Lazarus Group operating inside of North Korea? We don't have relations with them at all. And they are admittedly criminals, more of the steal your money as opposed to crash your systems and start a war kind of criminals. But hey, baby steps. So what we have to do is we have to create a global organization, something like under like the World Health Organization, effectively, while it does operate inside of countries, it has this global reach. And it has this ability for 
the the investigative arms, kind of like an Interpol type agency, where they can go in and they can get people who are breaking international law. And here's a thing that a lot of people in the U.S. are really not going to like. We have to get a big plate of crow, and we have to eat it and admit that just because it's our idea doesn't mean it's the best idea out there. So rather than not agreeing to all of these treaties and all of these things where we're like, you guys need to do the thing that we want you to do, but we're not going to sign it because it shouldn't apply to us, we need to do the same. Which means that if a U.S. citizen breaks international cyber law, he needs to get his butt hauled out of the U.S. to The Hague and tried for an international cyber crime. And yeah, boy, those same people with the pitchforks and torches that thought that the government needs to stay out of our business, they really hate it when U.S. citizens get tried in international criminal courts because you broke the friggin' law. All right, one last thing. For the love of all that's holy, please keep the intelligence agencies out of this. They're the closest thing we have right now to international cooperation. The Five Eyes groups and all the other people who are trading all this information back and forth. And generally, when we find out about one of these giant criminal gangs that gets taken down, it's because the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, or in all, the, all of these other three-letter agencies were somehow involved in the investigative work. You're taking a problem that's being created by private citizens by and large and turning it into a military operation. And military operations usually end poorly. If you want this to be a civilian operation run by civilian people with civilian punishments, you need to keep the military and the intelligence apparatus out of it. They can provide information. They can provide testimony. But they should absolutely not be the people in charge of this. And this is something we've been dealing with in the country for the last year. Do we let Cyber Command go free to attack our enemies? Are they really our enemies or are they our opponents? Because the difference between the two is the difference between I'm going to put you out of business and I'm going to put you down. And that's a line that can be very easily crossed when you don't have the right kind of oversight. Yeah, I'll agree with that uh, last bit, Tom. I, I do think that it's very, very important that this is not just an arm of the NSA. I'll also say that it's going to be very difficult to figure out whether this yeah. is an arm of the NSA or not. Uh, but that being said, I think that by having this as part of the U.S. federal government uh, to start with, rather than the military or the intelligence uh, apparatus, and by having this potentially be something where it's a you know, confirmation process with public oversight is probably a good step toward that. Can we know for sure? No. I'll also agree that it would be great if we had international cooperation on this. And overall, I think that may be where we're headed. But for now, uh, at the very least, I think that it's time for us to look at the uh, current situation and say, you know what, this is not something that private industry is going to be able to deal with. And we need to all get together and, and, and take on these cyber threats, even if it means giving up some of our freedom you know, as individuals and as companies. And I think that uh, many people might agree with that, even if the particular form of this is distasteful. Well, it's a little heavier conversation than we normally get into here on The Rundown, but these are the kinds of things that are in the news now. And, and we really appreciate you sticking around and hearing some of our thoughts, maybe a little bit of a deeper take on a, an interesting uh, perspective on the way that things are are in the world today. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of other great things that are coming up. We just finished Cloud Field Day. Um, Stephen, what's the next thing you've got on your plate that people should definitely check out? 
Well, the next big thing for me is Storage Field Day.、Uh, always my favorite because, of course, hey, storage guy. So、uh, check out、uh, March 9th through 11th. We'll be in Santa Clara once again with a great group of independent technical folks,、uh, both in the room and virtually connecting, as well as a great group of presenting companies talking about some really cool next generation storage technology. Awesome. And we've got a couple of other exciting events coming up just after that.、Uh, March 16th and 17th, we have a special exclusive event with our friends at Cisco. We're going to be talking about some of the latest and greatest software and hardware releases that they're going to be coming out with. And you're definitely going to want to tune in for that. We've got two full days of exciting presentations around things like wireless technologies. We're going to have some of the teams from Meraki show up. We're going to have、uh, some data center and enterprise networking、uh, presenters that you're going to be thrilled to hear from. And then the next week is Security Field Day, the 23rd, 24th, and 25th of March. And you know, we have all kinds of fun stories on the rundown about you know, cyber threat actors and、uh, you know, defense against them. And we've got a lineup of companies that can't wait to tell you more about what they're doing to help that space. If you want to see the delegates and as well as the presenters for that event, please head over to techfieldday.com and click on the link for Security Field Day 7. And they, you will be able to find out more about who will be there. But in the meantime, you should totally be here every Wednesday at 12 30 Eastern Time while we bring you some of the news of the week. We bring you some interesting stories that you might have overlooked, as well as some things that require a little bit more critical thought. And all our community members out there that leave comments on our videos that suggest stories or add their perspective to the conversation, we really appreciate that. You're the reason why we are as successful as we are because we see the things that you're talking about and we dig into them a little bit deeper, and it really helps us understand the way the world works. We will be back next week, 12 30 Eastern Time. In the meantime, you can not only check us out on our website at gestaltit.com where you can see the stories and the show notes, but you can also listen to us in a podcast format. So if you go over to your favorite podcast application of choice and just search for the Gestalt IT Rundown, Um, you'll get your latest episode every week when we get it uploaded. So you can listen to it on your run or, or maybe on your、uh, drive to work or whatever relaxing activity you like to do with a little dulcet tones of Stephen and Tom bringing you the IT news of the week. Like I said, we'll be back next week with another great episode. From then until then, please make sure that you check us out on all the things we do at gestaltit.com and techfieldday.com. And sign up for our mailing list so that you can get notified as soon as we have more great things for you to check out. We hope you have an amazing day and a wonderful week, and we will see you soon. <laughs>